going to be in First uh, Peter three today. As we continue our series in the letters of Peter, if I'd have read this chapter uh, beforehand when I was choosing it, I might not have picked it. I'm just kidding. This, this is a this is an interesting chapter to unpack. Uh, talking about wives and husbands specifically. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Throughout this letter, uh, Peter has been making a case for how believers who are enduring persecution should live. How they should interact with the world and the people who are persecuting them. And he began by reminding his believers of the gospel and how they are exiles in the kingdoms of this world. That the trials they were enduring would prove their faith and glorify God. He reminded them that they were called to live holy lives. And that the foundation of this was sacrificial love and service to others. Then he showed how this principle might be applied in their relationships. First at the national level. Uh, then at the working level between slaves and masters. And then as we continue this morning... We will see how he addressed personal and familial relationships by talking about husbands and wives. Maintaining personal relationships has never been easy, right? There may be several factors involved, such as upbringing, different cultural backgrounds, different sets of values, things like that. But ultimately, the primary reason is that humans are selfish. We want things our way. And it's not easy for us to give in to others or to compromise. It's a struggle in friendships, in romantic relationships, and in family groups, much less with the more casual connections in our lives. Peter didn't go through and address every possible type of relationship. He set out three primary types in order to establish a guiding principle based on the gospel. And having covered a believer's relationship with the government and in work situations, he then turned to the most personal type of relationship there is, that of marriage. And he used it to reiterate what he had already set out with the first two types. And that as followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom, you should never be interested in taking or exerting power over anyone for any reason because that is not the way of his kingdom. If it had been, that meeting between Jesus and Pilate would have gone very differently, right? But when asked about his kingdom by Pilate, Jesus had a response that I think many of us might overlook. We find it in John 18, 36, where Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. See, Peter carried this guiding principle into the marriage relationship to show how we are to demonstrate sacrificial love by serving each other. So let's dig in and see what he had to say specifically. Follow along with me, if you will, 
We're going to begin in 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live, your, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay. So in verse 1, Peter starts off by using this word, uh, homois, in the Greek, and that means in like manner. We say likewise, that's what he reads, but the meaning is clear. Peter necessarily connected this level of relationship with the others he had already talked about. He's pulling a thread through all of them, showing a single guiding principle that applies in every sort of relationship. Now, if I'm being candid here, I think this passage and others like it in the letters of Paul have been greatly misunderstood and horribly misapplied. I've heard more sermons than I can count on how a husband is the ruler of the household and the wife had to be submissive no matter what. I've heard preachers and Bible teachers of all sorts come at this passage and others like it from a dominant and oppressive angle. As if husbands had every right to rule over their wives with an iron fist and the women just have to do whatever their husbands said. That doesn't make any biblical sense. Especially in light of how everything started. We read about this in Genesis 1.27. I'm sure we're all familiar with the story of the beginning. But not every Bible translates this particular verse the same. The ESV that I preach from, it reads, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this gives a certain impression in English that was really not present in the Hebrew. Typically, I favor the ESV translation. That's why I preach from it. It's a good translation. Uh, but in this case, it's not the best translation. This is one of those incredibly rare cases where the translators of the NIV, the New International Version, I think did a better job with the Hebrew. In the NIV, it reads like this. So listen for the changes. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now this fits uh, the indefinite article in the Hebrew uh, much more accurately. Now I know that's a lot of grammar and like nonsense to most of us. It just means that like we use pronouns to say he, him, she, her, 
and there's apparently a host of others that they've added to the list. But basically, we use those two, right? Uh, basic things. In, uh, or then, when we're talking about more than one mixed group, right? The NIV that reads mankind, that fits better in the Hebrew. Them fits better in the Hebrew than him. It's because it's, it's an indefinite. I'm making a lot of nonsense here. <laughs> Basically, it, it works better to talk about them, God creating them together, uh, than anything else. In Genesis 2, when we get a bit more detailed version of how it happened, we see that Adam was created, and then Eve was brought out of him to be a helper, because it was not good for him to be alone. When Adam saw Eve, he exclaimed, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In other words, at last, a person like me. He had seen all the animals, right? He'd been naming the animals. None of them were like him. Finally, someone who's like me. At which point the author links that moment in creation with the establishment of marriage, declaring what happened with Adam and Eve is why men leave their parents and become one with their wives. It's the model, the standard, the precedent for everything that follows. But what followed was a subversion of that relationship, right? We know that the serpent tempted Eve and she ate from the tree of knowledge and then she gave some to Adam and he joined her. As a result, the Lord, when the Lord confronted them in the garden and then he explained the consequences of their actions, one of the effects for Eve, think about this, by extension all women, is that her desire would be contrary to her husband, but that he would rule over her. Which means the out of balance inequality we experience in marriage relationships is a result of mankind's collective turning away from God and the curse that followed. But that's not the ideal. It doesn't represent the nature of Adam and Eve's relationship before those moments. It's a subversion. And it's the result of a subversion. Eve took the lead without Adam's input. They weren't working together in that moment. And then she went along with it. And then he went along with it. And I, I firmly believe it, it would have been just as bad if Adam was deceived into making the decision without Eve and then she went along with it. It would have ended the same. So circling back to our text then, we see Peter explaining that in the kingdom of God, this subversion is overturned. He used the Greek word hupostaso. That's a compound word made from Kupo, which means under, and tato, which means to arrange. In other words, Peter wanted the wives to arrange themselves under the, the husbands to follow the cultural norms of their society. He'd been saying this all along, right? Respect the emperor. The emperor was oppressive toward the Jewish people and the, and the Gentile Christians that were coming into the, the belief, but he wanted them to be respectful and follow the laws and, and be the best possible citizens. Right? He said the same thing about slaves and masters in the working relationship, and he's carrying it into this as well. Even though they were free in Christ, 
from all worldly ways and kingdoms. And even though they were equals with their male counterparts in the faith, Peter wanted these wives to skip exercising that freedom in their current circumstances, not to act out in the Roman world that way. They had a reason for this. Without jumping ahead too much, we see in verse 7 that Peter called men and women joint heirs of grace. Right? Joint heirs is a term of equality. In the Roman world, women were not equal with men. We have to remember that uh, these were mostly Gentiles, Roman citizens, living in a Roman culture where men were dominant, and women were often little more than property. Typically, men in their mid-twenties would marry young teenage girls. That's how it worked in the Roman world. This was rarely based on romantic interests of any sort, almost invariably a matter of the social class system and its related economic structure. By law, women were under exclusive control of what was called the pater familias. That was sort of the name of the law that was given, which was either their father, their husband, or an eldest brother. Sometimes that's how it worked out. Women and their children took on the social status of their paterfamilias, whoever that man was. And this is who Peter was speaking to in this section of the letter, these, these wives who were in that situation. He wasn't telling the men to dominate their wives, and he wasn't telling the wives to just suck it up. He wanted them to serve willingly, to love their husbands sacrificially, Especially since it's clear that many, if not most of their husbands, were not believers. As Peter emphasized his point by offering hope that living as willing servants might very well win them over. Peter then made a distinction between two types of adornment. First giving a brief description of outward adornment as a matter of braided hair, which I know nothing about, uh, gold jewelry, and fancy clothing. Right? Based on a straightforward reading of what Peter said here, no Christian woman should ever take part in these three things. But I've been in all kinds of churches and none of them follow this teaching. Even in the strict Southern Baptist church I grew up in, no one batted an eye when the girls braided their hair or wore gold jewelry. And fancy clothes were actually encouraged, as long as it was modest. It seems as if Peter had a particular style in mind when he wrote this. As if he was basically saying, you know the kind of women in our culture who do these specific things? And that sort of separates them out as a certain type of woman in our culture? Don't be like them. That's what Peter's basically saying. As we look at this passage now, we shouldn't come away with it with a renewed attempt to make our wives and daughters fit this. Because we don't live in the same culture with the same customs. It doesn't work. On the contrary, braided hair is completely acceptable throughout our culture. But whether it's rings or earrings or bracelets, gold jewelry is a normal aspect of most people's everyday attire. And while clothing can be more of a sticking point depending on where you're at and who you're with, for the most part, it's not a big issue. But our concern isn't blandly following 
dictates from the ancient world, even if they're in the Bible. It's in unpacking the principles that guided them so that they may guide us as well. In those terms, Peter seems to have wanted wives to focus more on who they were on the inside, to spend their time developing gentleness and peacefulness. And he claimed that these were a matter of imperishable beauty, making it clear that when it comes to believers, character counts more than costume. This is the principle that holds true. Not the cultural commentary that may have applied to something during that time but no longer has the same connotation for us, but the timeless truth centering on who we are as followers of Jesus and citizens of his kingdom. Peter wasn't just telling these women to sit down and shut up to know their place. He was telling them that they had the ability to live a sacrificial service, a life, sorry, a sacrificial service just as he did. That they could follow in his footsteps, in Jesus' footsteps, by focusing on who they were and how they served others. The problem again is that this teaching can be and has been so misapplied over the years. It's been used to prop up a type of hierarchical, male-dominated approach to our faith that was never intended. We know this because of things like Peter said here about women being joint heirs with the men, an unheard of concept at that time. In Galatians 3.28, Paul talked about how in Christ there are no longer male or female. And he didn't mean that we're all genderless from now on. That's not what Paul's saying. He meant that in the kingdom of God, gender isn't something that separates us. The curse and its effects, the separation that the curse brought into our lives was being reversed. In the ancient world, gender absolutely separated people. And in our culture, it still does. Even maybe more now than ever before. You just look at the culture and, and our news media, the way they cover things, and our world is so concerned with gender now that it dominates the news cycles on a regular basis in terms of who should have which rights and who shouldn't. People are up in arms one way or the other. We rarely stop to have actual conversations. We have a lot of opinions. But we've forgotten how to really care about people we disagree with. As I read over what Peter said here, I think, what are we doing? Because one thing that is absolutely certain is that Jesus loves every single person equally, regardless of what we may think about them. If the love of Jesus is sacrificial in nature, if, as Philippians 2, 6-8 shows us that Jesus didn't parade his rights out as justification for neglecting or mistreating others, but he laid them down, then our approach to everything should follow that pattern. Instead, the church has made a grab for cultural and political power, with name-brand pastors saddling up to those in power like 
dogs waiting for crumbs, just hoping some of that power might spill from the table so they can lap it up. And unfortunately, it's worked a little bit. Enough to convince a whole generation of evangelicals that this is how we change the world. When the truth is that this is how the world has changed us. We have to decide which kingdom will get our allegiance. Which one will get our minds and hearts and hands and feet. Which one will be our home? Peter continued to try and draw these believers into the larger story of Jesus and his kingdom. He did so by continuing to circle back to the story of Israel. He continues to put that thread through everything he's talking about. In verses 5 through 6, he connected the dots from how he was encouraging them to live with the women in the story of Israel, most specifically, Abraham's wife, Sarah. He highlighted the parallel between his teaching and how Sarah submitted herself in love to Abraham. Not for him to rule over her, even though she called him Lord, but as an act of service. If we don't get this, if we fail to grasp and apply this motivation in our lives, all we have is an antagonistic social connection built on whoever has power and whoever doesn't. Does that sound like what Jesus was all about? What he taught his followers? What his followers taught others? Did Jesus show up as a baby in Bethlehem stable in order to rule over mankind in that way, like the kings of the earth? Or did he show up to serve mankind and win us over with love? Peter wanted the Gentile believers to be drawn into that larger story of Israel so that who Jesus was and what he did would make sense to them and would become their guiding principle as well. So as I always ask, is this what we are doing? Are we lovingly and sacrificially serving the people of Marathon and the Big Bend area? Specifically starting with our families and then moving out like a ripple. Are we leaning into the larger story of Jesus and his kingdom in such a way that we are winning over those who are not believers? Are we spending our time developing our inward qualities for the sake of the Lord? Working on living gentle and peaceful lives. Because even though Peter was writing to the wives when he said that, aren't those part of the fruit of the Spirit? And don't the fruit of the Spirit apply to all of us who have the Spirit? Gentleness, peacefulness, isn't that part of it? As we get to verse 7, we see that Peter brought the husbands into the discussion at that point, encouraging them to live in an understanding way with their wives by showing them honor because he said they're weaker vessels. We can have a long talk about that. But he also called them joint heirs, as I've been saying this whole time. He used the same word to include the husbands as he had the wives, likewise. 
meaning the same guiding principle applied here. Sacrificial service motivated by the love of God. And again, the focus here is on the idea of husbands and wives being joint heirs, sharing in the inheritance of God's kingdom. As I said before, this idea was unheard of in the first century Roman world. It was also revolutionary for the Jewish people. And we see this idea over and over in the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 3.29, after claiming there was no longer a separation between male and female, Paul went on to write that all of them, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. This is a radical approach to what the people of faith might look like and how they may operate among themselves. Within the kingdom of God, there is no longer a dividing wall separating men from women. The division that had existed in the synagogues and the temple and the Roman world, when you come into the kingdom, it's gone, it's been removed. The division that the curse imposed was no longer active for those who had been brought out from under the curse through faith in the work of Jesus. In other words, in God's kingdom, we are all equal. All heirs of the promise. There is no hierarchy where some people get more God or eternal life than others. No version of our lives as citizens of God's kingdom where we take or exert power over anyone for any reason because that is not the way of his kingdom. Not for wives, not husbands, not slaves, not masters, not emperors, not governors. No one. In all our relationships, from the national level to the working level to the personal level, we are to act as servants. Whatever roles we find ourselves in in life, we are there to be servants. You're not there to exert power over others, but to follow the model Jesus set by living sacrificially for the sake of others. So what does that look like in your life? my life? How does it play out where you're at in the relationships that you have? Who do you interact with? And what role do you have in the various relationships you're in? How does that come to play in all of them? Is there someone who would benefit from your loving service to them? How have you been developing yourself on the inside toward this purpose? We can either misuse passages such as this to enforce codes of conduct based on who has power and who doesn't, or we can live our lives as servants, always looking for ways to serve others for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, especially when we're persecuted for it. But following in Jesus' footsteps by offering ourselves as living sacrifices, we can bring about real change in this world that will matter beyond our time here on into eternity. We pray with you.